Welcome, and I'm absolutely thrilled and delighted to be with Adam Collins today, uh, journalist, broadcaster, uh, communication specialist, advisor to uh, multiple politicians, Australian, uh, English, father of a new five-month-old baby girl. Yeah, wow, what haven't you done, Adam? You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Morris. It's, it's lovely to join you. <laughs> Good. So what are you up to at the moment? Where are you? Well, uh, I am in my house in North London. I am uh, in the middle of a test series that's being played, which I'm covering for a number of media organisations, but not attending, which is very unusual for me. I, I like to be where the action's at. It's kind of both my, I suppose, passion in, in sport and in, and in journalism, but also um, my business model is that I'm the guy who's on the spot, on the ground, where, where it needs to be. I enjoy travelling and I enjoy getting the opportunity to witness things firsthand. So it was a fraction odd last week being at home on the sofa when a number of my colleagues were at the ground at Southampton for the first test match in the biosecure bubble, but um, I wasn't. So it's, a, it's like purgatory at the moment. We've got sport back, but for me, it's not quite as I um, most enjoy it. Yeah, okay. And, and, and cricket is your passion? Yeah, to an extent. It's certainly, as far as sport's concerned, I, I kind of grew up in a, in a household where sport was the proxy for everything. Uh, in the winter, I was defined by following the Hawthorne Football Club. Uh, in the summer, I was defined by playing cricket in the garden and, or in the front yard or very classic quintessential Australian upbringing until the sun went down and would do so uh, from October till March and then the cycle would begin again. So yeah. on the basis of that, I've always had a, an acute interest in, in, in footy and cricket especially. But with cricket, it just was one of those things where at the end of my um, stint being a political staffer, um, I had a couple of ideas of bits of writing I wanted to do and one thing led to another and I had a column and after taking a, a role in another job for a, a window of time, I realised that I needed to be doing something creative and, and writing was, was a great outlet for that. So I suppose I was able to tie a couple of interests together, that being writing and um, creative sort of thinking and also sport and cricket and having kind of came out of this political tradition where I worked crazy hours and, and lived a pretty uh, high wire existence through my 20s. This was the, a, a nice logical next step. And, and why are you in the UK? I am in the UK, well, uh, that's a very good question. I don't really consider it much these days. Or as I must say, it, it, it's one, it, it just kind of happened. No, I, I, did, I did spend a lot of time in the UK as a student and early in my career, so in my 20s, um, whenever I had the opportunity to travel, I would. And invariably, it would end up being back in England where I have family links and so forth. So I came over here a little bit as a kid and was kind of fascinated by that. I was always really interested in my grandparents. I grew up um, with my parents, of course, and my brother, but also very closely to my grandparents. We were, I was, that was the first home I lived in. And even through to when my um, grandmother passed away in 2013, I was still very close to her. When my granddad died, I went and lived with her for a few years. Um, and she was from North Wales up in a, um, a town called Denby, um, right up towards Anglesey there real up in the, in the, in the, I guess, the very uh, corner of North Wales. Uh, and my grandfather was, uh, well, he was from a lot of, uh, he lived in a lot of parts of England, but principally Bournemouth. Uh, and he'd um, been in the, in the military and, and served in the war and so forth. So I always had a, a strong interest in, in their lives. And I think that um, it wasn't as though I was an, an obsessive uh, 
um, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not an Anglophile per se. It's just that it felt quite natural being over here. And when the cricket career began, it made sense to be over here for the English summers and Australia for the Australian summers um, because of the professional side of things. It was good. It was convenient. I had both passports. It was easy. And over time, um, I just thought that, well, why don't I live in the UK for an extended stint? Then I met my partner and then we moved in together. And then I, I became a London resident on a more full-time basis. And I still and, get back to Australia she, a few is she, is she English? Yeah, she's very much English. She's well, a, the short answer, you did it for love, right? That's why I'm in the northeast of England. It's for love, right? That, that's a much better answer than what I said. <laughs> Now I'll come back to the I'll come back to the cricket piece, but let's sure. kind of just focus on the political piece. See, you've kind of I know that sure. you worked for, you know, some Australian um, prime ministers. Um, you've been in politics, so kind of take us through that journey. What, what was it like? Yeah, it was pretty full on, um, and that's an understatement. It was extremely intense. Uh, I was a creature of the. Labor Party from age 18, I got first involved in sort of, as you do at university, join the Labor Party. And I think I actually joined in, in, in high school when I was um, living in the United States when I was 17. I was an exchange student for 12 months, which is an unusual thing to do when you're mm. 17 to be away for a year. But I was, and it happened to correspond with the, the time that, um, well, America was turned upside down by the September 11 attacks. And I, I joined the Labor Party in, in that period. And upon returning home, I just really wanted to be involved in contributing to making the world a better place. It sounds ridiculously idealistic. And we know that politics isn't strictly speaking that as much as we would like it to be, but that was my avenue into it. I had strong views. I had a sense of social justice. I studied it hard at school. I was going to study it at university. Uh, and I thought that it was a, a potential career path for me. And I just went at it like bullet a gate stuff really. Um, and Within a year or so, I was working for my local member of parliament, one of my local members of parliament. Then um, a few years after that, I, I was running sort of the Young Labor operation. Uh, and a year after that, I was um, working for the Prime Minister, which is a very odd transition. But there was an election in 2007. Labor was in power for the first time for 11 and a half years. I was very, very fortunate to get an opportunity working on the 2007 election campaign as a very junior media operative. I was 23. I had to collect the newspapers off the truck at, you know, half past three every morning. Um, and that, and that job continued into um, government. I was, it was a fraction later. I was getting the papers at five to four off the back of a truck. I'd take them into the PM's office. I'd scour them um, with a highlighter. And then at 5.15 each morning, there'd be a briefing with most of the heavy hitters. And I would brief them on, on the news of the day as they were waking up for their work day. And that was kind of the start of my, my life working in full on politics. And after that, I, I, I suppose I did relatively well in that setting and enjoyed that setting a lot, enjoyed giving my everything to it. And maybe in hindsight, that was, that was a mistake giving absolutely everything to a job. But at the time it didn't feel that way. It felt like the right thing to do. Mm. Uh, and within a, a year or so, I got promoted to a, more senior role in the PM's office as a political advisor and working on some broader, um, uh, broader communication stuff, which was really exciting. And the year after that, I um, was, I guess, my biggest of breaks, which was the, the, the deputy, well, it was the treasurer, then the federal treasurer, Wayne Swanee, became the, the deputy prime minister not long after that. He was hiring for a press secretary and we knew each other because I'd been um, invited to serve in the parliamentary tactics committee or the question time tactics committee is like the, you know, young, whippersnapper and, and, and Swanee 
um, asked me to come and work for him. And so at age 25, I was the press secretary to the treasurer and he became deputy prime minister not long after that. I had a, um, a senior colleague I was working with, but you know, um, it was still a pretty big gig at a young age. Mm. And, um, and that's what I did for the next few years. There were a few different twists and turns along the way. I spent a year in the UK actually on sabbatical working on the Olympic games um, in 2012 when I needed to get away from the whole thing for a while um, when I did burn out um, and took mm. a year off. But I came back to it and was the deputy communications director on the 2013 national campaign. Um, and then um, gracefully departed stage left at age 29 and said that that was it for me. I'd, I'd done my decade as a political staffer and I would and, go and on and do other things. And what was it like to be at the centre of power? What, what was, what was the, the best and worst part of it? I think for me, it was observing being in the centre of power. I mean, I was there. I was a participant, but I wasn't a principal. I didn't have MP next to my name. I wasn't a minister. I wasn't um, a chief of staff either. I was, I was a functionary around the big decisions being made. So getting to observe the behaviour of senior decision makers is fascinating. Um, getting to help inform those decisions is enthralling, exhilarating. Um, not to say that my advice was the advice always taken, but when it was, I mean, that's a pretty, um, you know, a pretty uh, uh, a big deal for someone who's relatively young. And, um, and whether I was ready for that or not is, is neither here nor there. I was trusted with that responsibility at the time to give that sort of advice and to brief the press gallery or press lobby, as you call it over here each day and go up there and be speaking on behalf of senior people. It was a great experience professionally. I had to grow up very quickly. I had to go from being a fairly fast and loose 23-year-old, albeit with, you know, ambition and, and, and interest and I guess a pretty good academic backing, but still I was pretty fast and loose. And, you, you know, by the end of that time, you had, yeah, you had to grow up. You had to um, sit at the big kids table. And I found that idea of observing people who have to make big decisions, the most captivating part of the entire job. And hopefully something that has been, um, been positive for me uh, now running my own business essentially and, and, and knowing that um, and, and not, yeah, I guess in some ways knowing the wrong way to do things, but also having good role models uh, in that same way. And what did you hear about it? What was the worst part of it? What was, you know, we, we, we both know politicians very well, right? Yeah. You know, so you know, I can almost guess some of the answers, but what would, for you, what would be the worst part of it? I mean, the toxicity, um, the cultural toxicity of politics, especially at the top level. Yeah. And maybe it's one of those things where it's actually not as bad at the top level as it is at the lower levels. I can't remember anymore, frankly, but um, I, I, do, I do know that um, whilst there was a, um, a cult-like loyalty to each other, and that remains to this day, incidentally, the people I worked with through that era, I mean, I feel I love them deeply and would do anything for them, deeply love them. And I think they feel the same way about me. And it's not as though we all always got on. We'd have steaming rows on a daily basis. Even the deputy prime minister, you know, the, the, the Wayne in question, I mean, I wrote his book after he finished, I wrote a significant slab of his book when he finished his deputy PM. And, um, and even then we continue to have these blazing rows, but he'd do anything for me and I'd do anything for him. And I think that loyalty is the best fit. But on the other side of it is that the tribalism and the nature of tribal politics is such that um, you would do anything to diminish and hurt other people. And I think that, and I've said this before, I think that your moral radar when you work in professional politics gets skewed on a personal level. So you're taught in your condition to not just, and this is a, um, a crossover with some work you've done with, um, with, uh, with the Australian cricket team, but not just push up against the line, but your job is to um, push over the line and cheat and break the rules just a little bit, but not get caught. 
Mm. Break the rules to your advantage every day and not get caught. And I think that the saddest part for me is that bled into my personal life. So when I um, finished up, I was asked to write a letter to myself, to my 17-year-old self. A, a, a pop culture website asked me to do this a few years ago. And I might have been out of politics for two years by then or, or something like that. And that was a, a, a big period of introspection for me. And I, I remember at the time thinking that I, I really regret um, the way my personal relationships reflected my professional need to be conniving. And I think that that was a time in my life when I wouldn't have treated people particularly well and they wouldn't have treated me particularly well on, on the flip side of that. Um, and it took me a long time and, and frankly, a lot of therapy um, to realise um, how I um, had these, um, the, the, the connections in my brain weren't as good as they should have been or as, or as robust as they should have been when I needed them to be to help um, with my moral judgments at the time. I, I get that. And, 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 and politics is, you know, I, I know it's a fascinating subject for you and a fascinating subject for me, but, uh, you know, I'll just kind of not dwell too much on it. So let's just kind of flip over to the cricket side, right? You know, sure. because, because I know you've been on the losing side to me on a couple of occasions. So uh, I just talk about some of the, uh, some of the, the cricket, the, the cricket events. Um, you know, what's, what would be your best moment in cricket? What's the kind of moment you look back and say, wow, you know, that was just fantastic. I w like I was there. It's funny. It was, it, it, it could have been an, a year yesterday. So we're recording this um, on the 15th of July, the 14th of July last year was the world cup final at Lords. And for me, it was the culmination of a lot of things. So a year earlier, well, nine months earlier uh, in the desert of Dubai and the UAE, um, I had a, a pretty remarkable experience where um, I had the, I was going to say good fortune. That's the wrong formulation of words. I, I, I had the, uh, the, uh, the pride, the pride of buying the international broadcast rights to the Australian Pakistan test series. I say pride because it was bloody hard work and it was a massive personal financial risk and reputational risk. And, and we pulled it off and it was a raging success. Um, and it was, written about around the world and there's been a documentary made about it on radio by the ABC last year. And, um, it's, it's been, you know, it's, it's probably something that people will talk about for me forever, like in, in cricket terms, I'll remember me as that guy that did that thing. Anyway, press fast forward to the world cup last year. And, um, there was a, a situation where, and I won't bore you with all the detail here, but the, the world feed wasn't functioning the way that it should be to broadcast back to the 17 radio stations around the world who needed it. And a radio station I'd worked for came to me and said, can you fix this for us? And I said, I can, I can do this. I am, you know, I want to do this and I can do this. And I was able to assemble an international caliber broadcast team for the last six games of the world cup, of course, culminating in the unbelievable final, uh, which culminated in a super over. And to be on the microphone um, myself for that last five overs of regulation and in the entirety of the super over and having done, you know, I think a pretty good job with it. I'm proud of the job I did in, mm. in calling that moment. Um, for me, it, it, was, it wasn't just a culmination of a day's work. It was of, in, in some respects, four or five years of being involved in broadcasting, mm. a lot of it in alternative broadcasting and pirate radio. It's how we got our start on the air and, and having that, um, uh, you know, uh, that, that come to fruition, I guess, in that one moment, that one ball at Lords. And I listen back to it from time to time. It gets played from time to time when I've done various different projects. And um, it always gives me a shiver down the spine to know that when um, the time was there, I, I kind of nailed it. And that was exhilarating. Yeah, that's brilliant. And, and what would be your worst moments in cricket? 
My worst moment in cricket is going to take some thinking because I've had a really great experience. I think my worst moment is more like it's a, it's a it's it's when you're rejected. It's when um, for me, I, su I suppose my pride um, can be dinted when things don't go the way I want them to. When I when I don't get to do the things I'd like to do and, mm -hmm. and so on. So it's not as though there's one example of my worst moment, but that's when I'm at my lowest ebb. And I suppose um, the, the saddest time in cricket really was the time when I was in South Africa covering the ball tampering saga. I was on air commentating when, um, when Cameron um, got pinged by the, by the officials. And I was in the press conference with Steve and Cameron that night. And I was hanging around the hotel watching Davey the next day, uh, or the days after after the test match had finished and I was on air um, when the test match finished in fact uh, the next day I remember this as well because um, I was calling with um, Adam Voges a former test player who's Cameron's who Cameron um, considers a mentor and a very close friend his former captain in the WA side and this is Cameron Bancroft the Australian cricketer obviously Cameron Bancroft the Australian cricketer yeah who I know you've had a lot to do with um, and uh, Adam don't, and I, don't, don't make that association. I've had a lot to do with subsequently, not in the particular instance. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> subsequently, indeed, indeed. Helping you get back on the right track. But the, the, um, I remember calling the finale of that test match and being extremely emotional. Not like crying, but the way I called the end of that, I think it says something like, you know, um, uh, suffering the humiliation his team deeply, deeply deserve or something like that. It was a variation of that formulation of words or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm gibbering here, but, you know, I basically was getting at the point that um, Australia had earned this, this team had earned this, um, this humiliation. And I wanted to make that really clear. And I think that I got perhaps carried away a bit in that moment, but that's because it was just so sad um, mm -hmm. for them. It was just so sad how it all played out, knowing how their lives were going to be so dramatically affected. When the press conference took place in uh, behind the press box at Cape Town there, I said to my colleagues, He's fucked. He's, he's gone. Steve is gone. That's it. He's going to be sacked. And my colleagues were saying, some of them were saying, oh, come on, mate. It's just a bit of ball, you know, just a ball tampering charge. You know, like he'll, he'll, he'll get in trouble and he'll, um, and I go, no. And I just knew my political instincts kicked in. I knew he was in an enormous amount of trouble. I knew he was lying. I didn't know how, but I knew he was lying uh, one. And I knew that he was in enormous amount of trouble. My, my radar, you know, um, it ticked off. And, um, and that was sad too. I mean, I'd interviewed Steve a number of times and had a, you know, a strong regard for him as a bloke and as a, a, a nice guy and a well-meaning guy. And, and here he was about to walk into an utter shitstorm and I knew it. And that was sad. But at the same time, I knew that they deserved what was coming on a, on a different level, on a cricketing level, they deserved what was coming. And, and the full story came out in the fullness of time. But yeah, that, that, was, a, that was a chastening time. Okay, it was. Um, yeah, I, I obviously have... Uh very vivid memories of uh, being in that hotel and in similar ways to you, um, looking at it with different lens, obviously, and different perspective and uh, different feelings of how to protect or to uh, recalibrate some of the stuff that was going on. But, you know, that was uh, cricket. So who's the cricketer you admire most? Who's looking back? Who, or who would be the sporting hero and why? That's a great question. Who's the cricketer I admire most? Um, it's hard because I suppose in some respects, the, um, the old adage of never meeting your heroes does, um, does ring true when it comes to players I grew up watching, frankly. Um, you know, uh, and, and that's fine. That's just, that's just the circle of, 
um, going from being a kid to being an adult that you realize that people aren't necessarily what you built them up to be. I'm sure it's the same with, um, with, with, uh, with other mentors, not just sports people. But um, I think that as far as who I like idolize as a kid, like they, that was more for their, their sport. It was more for how graceful they were as cricketers. So Mark Waugh, Shane Warne, it's quite a common answer, I suppose, in, for a guy of my age to have um, idolized them as players. But um, who now I, I think of in, in those terms is a slightly harder question to answer. I, I have a huge amount of regard for, for a lot of cricketers, um, which perhaps is why I'm finding it hard to answer your question. I, mm. I, it, it's hard to just nominate one person, I think, as someone I, I hold in that, esteem above anyone else. I'll give you an example of someone I do really do admire greatly though, Jason Gillespie. Jason Gillespie is a, was an exceptional cricketer who I loved watching bowl, but I, I also really admire the way that he, uh, much like Ian Chappell actually, who's another person I deeply admire, he uh, has no hesitation in going out there and, and, and telling the world what he thinks, even when inside the cricket um, bubble, it wouldn't always be considered to be um, de rigueur. So take, for example, the fact that he's a vegan, um, uh, which isn't really a thing that cricketers do, really, not often, or certainly not historically, uh, uh, having come out of that tradition of the Australian cricket team. Or his environmental activism uh, is another thing I admire. Or the way that he talks about his Indigenous background. He was the first Aboriginal to play for Australia, of course. Mm. So someone like Jason, I, I think, is, is, is an outstanding human being. Um, mm. and, and he was an outstanding cricketer. And having got to know him um, uh, professionally and having had him on various shows that I've done uh, the way I, the esteem I hold him in only grows and grows. And in recent times, um, just last week, indeed um, I've worked with Michael Holding and I'm good friends with Ebony Rainford Brent, but the way that they um, spoke last week in the context of the black, black lives matter. Yeah, yeah it, it was, was powerful. Absolutely it, powerful. Very special. Wasn't it? It was an incredible, um, it was an incredible um, uh, way to, um uh you know it was it was it was a it was an incredible way to see the whole thing encapsulated in the space of 10 minutes of television and don't get me wrong um you know there are other people out there who who fought this fight and who, who have been right at the middle of all of this but um that it was on sky i think was telling it was like you know on a murdoch um product um that they just gave them the space that a lot of sky subscribers would hate them for running this topic at the top of their cricket program mm. and yet they did it anyway and it was so admirable um and ebony on a personal level having seen like the, the way in which she is just taken to this uh and made it her mission to be vocal and present for other people i mentioned on my show yesterday that must be so draining mm. imagine how draining it must be getting up on top of all the things we have to do in our lives to you know, um, make a living, to live a productive life professionally, to care for the people that you love, um, to be there as someone who supports others. And then on top of all that, go, right, I'm going to go out there every single day and advocate on behalf of an entire race of people. Mm. Like that is grueling. But mm. there's Ebony every single day doing her thing. She's a wonder, wonder, wonderful woman. Yeah, she is. I, I, I've had the pleasure of meeting with her and I did a podcast mm. with her as well. Yes. And, uh, you know, she's lovely. Right? She's funny. She's witchy. Um, she's talented, obviously. And, uh, you know, she, she talks to a topic that's, you know, that's, that's very close to me because I've got three black grandchildren. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, want a world where, you know, talent is recognized rather than anything else. But anyway, different story. So I'm, I'm conscious of the time we could talk forever. So, yeah. you know, um, Part of what I'm 
doing and, and, and what I've been involved in is, you know, as you know, it's about mindset. So, you know, where, where do you stand on the topic of mindset and, you know, as a broadcaster, as a, you know, commentator, as a person who's worked at the highest levels of politics, you know, what would you say to people about mindset, especially now when we're yeah. facing all of the challenges that we're facing uh, in the world today? Yeah. Um, okay. So I reckon that it took me a long, 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 long time to work out some really important and basic life lessons um, when it comes to mindset. Um, I think that I was always uh, predisposed to suffering from anxiety. I think that I was always built that way. Like I, I'm a control freak or have been a control freak historically. Um, you know, you could argue perfectionist might be the wrong word, but I've become quite obsessive when I'm, when I'm working or when I'm, or whatever I'm involved in really. And for the most part, I think that's a good thing, but, or a productive thing at least. But um, I realized over time that it was um, holding me back a bit, especially when it came to living in the present moment. I think that I spent so much time fixated on the past, what I could have done better and uh, consumed with the future about what I might do that I found it hard to enjoy and respect and appreciate what was happening in the here and now. Um, and a number of failed relationships probably um, spell that out, frankly. Uh, but the, I think the big turning point of all of that was um, getting out of politics and having a chance to just kind of unpack a lot of times when I made a lot of bad decisions and sort of understand, take responsibility for it for my mindset that is so take responsibility for uh, knowing that it was up to me to be the best version of myself that I could be. And I said this recently to my therapist, actually perhaps six months ago or so that the reason I was there was to be the best version of myself that I could be. And in turn, the best father I could be before Winnie was born. Um, and that requires constant maintenance. It doesn't come because you want it. It comes because you put the work in, you get out what you put in cliched as that sounds that's that's how i feel about it when it comes to mindset for me and um being able to uh practice mindfulness to that extent so i know that when i'm meditating regularly and when i'm journaling regularly uh, and when i'm practicing yoga regularly that i am a better person to be around yeah. i know that when i'm not i'm harder work and that can't be a coincidence mm. it's because you're training your brain the neural pathways and all the rest of it stuff i've learned um, which I never thought about before. I just thought that that's just the way I am. I'm just a, um, I'm just a, you know, a, that's how I'm, that, that's how I, I present as a full on sort of, you know, workaholic and, and, um, you know, uh, obsessive type. Well, that's just the way I'm always going to be. Um, so there's no point, you know, sort of dwelling on that. Let's make the most of the situation when instead I realized that there is a way that you can step back from all of this and you can have a more productive relationship with people around you while not giving up any of your other advantages. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I say often, if you can't afford 10 minutes a day for meditation, then you need to spend an hour on it. One of the general observations, but that's just fantastic. And, and, we, and we could talk forever, uh, you know, but I, I know that you do the podcast, The Final Word. Where, mm. where, where can people find that? The Final Word. Uh, well, finalwordcricket.com is our website. And yeah, it contains, well, everything really. Uh, but mostly, yeah, the, the, the podcast we've been doing there for five and a half years. And 
the Calling the Shots miniseries, which has been the documentary I made recently, is also on there, which is a, a sort yeah, of a history of cricket commentary. So yeah. that's all inside that final word, cricket.com. Now, uh, and, and, and it is is fantastic, and I would recommend to people to take the opportunity of uh, you know lis- listening in because it uh, it gives you some good insights on uh, on what's actually happening. So you know what's next for you um, before uh, we finish up. So where where are you going more? More cricketing, more broadcasting. What's what's next for you? Yeah, I hope so. I think a bit of entrepreneurship as well. Like that that story I told you about buying the rights to that series. That was pretty exciting. And I think I need that kind of stimulation. I need to be doing something that's new all the time. I mean, longer term, I've never been shy about the fact that um, I'm interested in, in in public life. I mean, it's kind of the everybody knows that. There's no point in me being shy about that. I've always been interested in politics, and I think in the future. Um, if you know when when the time's right and when I'm ready for it, that, that's something I'm certainly interested in going back into. Um, but for now, here here in the UK or in Australia, oh, I think in reality it'd be Australia. But let's see how things go. But I think that for the time being, I, I really enjoy developing. How I thought of it was that I spent my twenties in politics. I'm spending my thirties in in the creative industries and 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 we'll see where i'm at for my 40s i'm 35 now so i'm halfway through this decade and let's see um what i do in my 40s but i but i certainly love this journey um that i'm on at the moment in cricket uh and i love the fact that it's it's one that i can now share with my family and um you know because cricket is special I mean, there's something about the the rhythms of the game there's something about the long pauses there's something about the the consideration over days that I think is special and unique and beautiful. And I want to make sure that my daughter gets to be involved in that with me as well. So even if I do go and move on and do other things professionally, cricket will always be close to me. Oh, listen, listen, thanks very much for the time. It's, it's just as always um, riveting, interesting, your, you know, your enthusiasm, your, your passion, um, your commitment kind of comes across um, so clearly, um, you know, and I, I, you know, I've had the pleasure of meeting you, and I've even had a drink with you, if I remember right. Yes, yeah, we've we, we, we've done that. We must we must do that again. Do it again soon. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and I can tell you, you know, uh, yeah, on uh, on uh, the the fact of uh, an Irish person talking to an Australian about cricket when you know how, somebody who has no idea about the game at all um, and who's constantly trying to learn it uh, was fantastic. But yes, um, thank you for your time. I really thank you, Oris. You're a good man. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. If you're interested in change, mindset and personal development, whether in your personal life or career, you can head over to morristuffy.com forward slash resources, where you'll be able to access loads of inspirational material, articles, podcasts and motivational thoughts, as well as meditation and visualization exercises. You can also get in touch with Dr. Maurice Duffy and his team by email on letstalkatmaurisduffy.com. And don't forget to follow him on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Simply search for At The Beak Squawks. <laughs>